President Biden is to survey the damage on the Hawaiian island of Maui, where wildfires took at least 114 lives and left some 850 people missing. Officials say the search to find and identify victims is painstaking and slow. It's Monday, August 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Lisa Mullins also coming up. Epi- academic groups say they may have discovered materials that superconduct at room temperature, but outside researchers are not so sure. A new Illinois law protects the money the so-called child influencers make or help their families make. It entitles child influencers to a percentage of the earnings made from the content that they're featured in. This is the first law in the U.S. that focuses on children performing on the Internet. It's 401. News headlines are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The National Weather Service says virtually all of Los Angeles's daily rainfall records have been broken after Tropical Storm Hillary made landfall in Southern California. NPR's Julia Simon has more. The intense storm that formed in abnormally warm waters off the coast of Mexico brought record-shattering rain to Southern California. San Diego got more rain Sunday than it's ever gotten in a recorded summer day. Desert communities east of Los Angeles, like Palm Springs, saw an average half a year's worth of rain in a single day. Roads are still flooded and blocked off across the region. Emergency officials have described water rescues from cars stuck in flash floods. But the Los Angeles mayor said today there was no recorded loss of life there. Mayor Karen Bass thanked Angelinos for listening to warnings and staying off the streets. The L.A. fire chief said the fire department is still monitoring highly saturated hillsides for possible landslides. Julia Simon, NPR News, Santa Monica. President Biden is on his way to Maui nearly two weeks after wildfires swept the Hawaiian island. He and the First Lady are to take a helicopter tour of the burnt-out areas. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell says the president is committed to Maui's recovery. I continue to provide the president updates on what the response efforts are, uh, and he always says, what else can we do? And we continue to move more resources in. I think based on the updates and the communication that I have had with the president, uh, he is uh, satisfied with our response, but he will always push us to make sure that we are doing as much as we can um, and bring in more resources if needed to support this community. Officials say at least 114 people died, and that number is likely to rise as crews continue to search through the debris. Lawmakers in Tennessee are convening for a special session on public safety today, called in response to a deadly school shooting in Nashville in March. The shooting led to gun reform protests inside the Capitol. From member station WPLN, Blaze Ganey reports. This morning, the Southern Christian Coalition formed a human chain around the Capitol building as they prayed for lawmakers to be compassionate during the upcoming session. Pro-gun control advocates and faith leaders are calling on the General Assembly to restrict access to guns. Chaplain Deron Johnson of United Church of Christ led one of the several prayers. Fill each person in the streets beyond this place so that your energy might rise up and help us and help them create change. When Tennessee's Republican governor issued the proclamation for the special session, he left little, if any, room for legislation related to making it tougher to buy guns to be filed. For NPR News, I'm Blaze Ganey in Nashville. On Wall Street, just before the close, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 36 point. The S&P 500 was up 30 points. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Woburn is trying to accommodate migrants who the state has temporarily housed in hotels there. WBUR's Amy Sokolow reports that Woburn is one of more than 80 communities the state is relying on to help handle the increase in new arrivals. Mayor Scott Galvin says the number of new families in Woburn has jumped from 10 to 59 in a week. He says the state has told him to prepare for up to 100 families. Galvin says the police and fire chiefs and the school superintendent are working together to welcome the families. We have a great team. We're ready for any challenge. But this one is a little bit different, and it's going to be a continuing challenge. And and we're definitely going to be needing some support from the state and the federal government to make this work. Under state law, Massachusetts is required to provide housing for families experiencing homelessness. Governor Healy has declared a state of emergency to help deal with the overwhelming demand for emergency housing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has raised more than $400,000 in campaign money over the summer. That does not include what she raised at a Nantucket fundraiser this past weekend. Finance records show that in the past year, Healey's campaign has taken in more than $5.5 million. Former Bristol County Sheriff Thomas Hodgson has been named the honorary chair of Donald Trump's 2024 Massachusetts campaign. That's the same role he played in Trump's 2020 re-election bid. Hodgson had said at the time that he was open to sending prison inmates to help build Trump's proposed border wall with Mexico. The Massachusetts vote in 2020 went to Biden 65 percent compared to 32 percent for Trump. In the forecast, hazy sunshine this afternoon, giving way to a layer of clouds overnight tonight, some intermittent showers, about 62 for low. Tomorrow should be lovely. Sunny, breezy, comfortable, not as warm as today has been. Should be in the mid to upper 70s tomorrow. 86 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. President Biden is in Maui today to survey the damage and talk to survivors of one of the deadliest wildfires in U.S. history. Two weeks after that event, most people whose homes were destroyed have found temporary housing. Some 2,000 people have moved into hotel rooms or Airbnbs. Many others are staying with family and friends, stopgap accommodations while they look for long-term housing. NPR's Greg Allen visited a home in Maui where 87 people, most of them from one extended family, have been staying while they consider what to do next. It's more than just a home, maybe more of a compound, with a house, a large garage, and other buildings. There are more than a dozen cars in the gravel parking lot. The hosts, the people who own this property, have connections to the family but don't want to be identified. Near the house, there's a large group of kids. 87 is the most who've stayed here, but the number fluctuates. There are about 25 to 30 children and as many as 50 or 60 adults. That's a lot of people. But Travis Cabanillo Ocano says it's not really that unusual. This is life in Hawaii. This is culture. We grew up sleeping in our cousin's house. We grew up sleeping with 20 of us in one little room, you know, but it's letting our kids and us being together like that brings a lot of comfort, I think, to, for me, 
O'Connell found a temporary place to stay here with his wife, three kids, and other members of his family, including cousins, aunts, uncles, and his 80-year-old grandfather. Recalling the fire, O'Connell's partner, Haley Miller, says the wind that day was whipping in a way that she hadn't seen before. By mid-afternoon, she smelled smoke. O'Connell jumped on a bike and rode toward the mountains to check it out. Within a few minutes, Miller says, things got really bad. We were just engulfed in ambers and black smoke and just everything. And so I see him coming back. He was riding a bike. Our neighbors running back and they're like, I just saw them just like, come on, let's go. We got to go. They grabbed their kids, jumped into their car and immediately were caught in a traffic jam as residents and tourists scrambled to escape the approaching fire. Miller says by the time they made it to O'Connor's parents' house, the fire had spread. She says it sounded like a series of bombs going off. The roof's caving in, it's the propane tanks blowing up, and the, the junkyard, all the cars, the gas tanks, like it was literally like every probably 10 seconds, you just heard O'Connor's sister, Nikki Holleran, also had a harrowing escape, but eventually made it out of Lahaina. She, her partner, and her kids spent the night in their car. The next day, Holleran says they made contact with other family members and reunited in a Walmart parking lot. My oldest is not one for emotions, but when he saw the family, like all of us, just it was just relief, yeah, like to just greet everybody and know that we're okay, and I know that they were worrying so much, you know. Remarkably, everyone in Okano and Holleran's extended family got out safely. Haley Miller called her mother, who said she could stay at Miller's stepfather's house on the other side of the island. But Miller told her she needed a place for all of her family members. Like, we've been through the fire together. Every single one of our family members is homeless. Like, there's nothing but what we have on our backs. My mom was like, okay, like, I understand. And then she calls me back 20 minutes later. She's like, come. Travis O'Connor says the kindness of his wife's stepfather has meant a lot to his family. Oh, uh, yeah, but I mean, this is not, this is not home, you know. I mean, I am grateful and blessed, I mean, for where we are and, and, and what we have. But O'Connor says his family is part of Lahaina, a close-knit community that's now dispersed. He's anxious to get back to his burned home to get photos of his property and start planning for the future. The properties in Lahaina, including Okano's and those of most of his family, are in an area that's now toxic. There will have to be extensive work removing debris and contaminated soil before rebuilding can begin. Hawaii Governor Josh Green has said at least nine months of housing will be made available to those displaced in the fire. But Haley Miller says the only housing she's heard of is for the short term. Other members of her family are in a hotel. They need to be gone by the 30th. You might be able to just take a couple days of downtime to get on your feet and find a solution, but really, where is there to go? Even before the fire, Maui had a severe housing shortage. But Travis O'Connor was hoping to find a long-term rental. Despite the challenges, he's confident that the community where he grew up and his family has lived for generations will be back. Lahaina is going to prevail in all of this. We're going to come out on top and God will help us to be, be Lahaina strong, yes. In the two weeks since the fire, this large family and others who are staying here are finding a new rhythm as they think about how they'll rebuild their lives. At night, they gather and talk, and sometimes with friends like Max Lewis, they have music. Greg Allen, NPR News, Maui.
Texas Governor Greg Abbott addressed a rally earlier this year celebrating the abortion ban that took effect after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. As long as I am governor of the great state of Texas, Texas will always protect the unborn. Thank you all. Well, in fact, just a few weeks ago, Abbott signed a law giving doctors leeway to provide abortions in Texas when patients face certain serious pregnancy complications. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin asked the Democrat from Houston who wrote that bill how she got it passed. Here is the problem, as State Representative Ann Johnson sees it. There are two groups of people that are talking past each other on a term. That term is abortion. For doctors, she says, an abortion is any termination of pregnancy. That includes if the fetus has a fatal condition or if the pregnant patient is facing a serious medical complication. For politicians who oppose abortion rights, she says... They believe abortion to be the elective procedure on a completely healthy fetus. Johnson is a Democrat. She says even if the goal of the Texas abortion bans was to stop those elective abortions, the law makes no distinction. Abortion in Texas is banned from conception, full stop. There is a medical exception, but it's extremely narrow. Someone has to be close to death. Very few cases qualify. The doctors and the hospitals and their lawyers were reading all of the Texas statutes, some of which from the early 1900s that went back into effect when Dobbs came out and saying, look, we can't tell you what to do here. The language is confusing. The terminology and the definitions are confusing. The laws also come with extremely steep penalties for doctors, like life in prison, the loss of their medical license, and $100,000 in fines. Johnson's district, Texas 134, includes the Houston Medical Center. She says after Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court and the Texas abortion bans took effect, people would stop her when she took walks around the district. Many of them would say, I know who you are. I'm a physician. And would talk about the concern that they had. The laws don't just affect OBGYNs, she says, pointing to a recent law that imposes criminal penalties on prescribers of certain medications that can cause abortions, like methotrexate, a drug used to treat cancer and autoimmune disorders. If you have a general practitioner or a dermatologist that's treating psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis of a 34-year-old woman who has no intentions of getting pregnant, and then she gets pregnant six months later, And that pregnancy terminates because of that medication. That doctor could get charged with a felony, she says. There have also been real-life stories, including many reported by NPR, in which patients facing pregnancy complications could not get doctors or hospitals to provide abortions early enough to fend off infections, hemorrhage, and more. Johnson heard from her constituents about women whose water broke too early. The stories that I was hearing is that women were suffering permanent physical, medical conditions because of a very basic event that happens in pregnancy, which is a ruptured membrane. When this happens at 17 weeks of pregnancy, for instance, there's no way for the fetus to survive, and the patient is at high risk of infection, even sepsis. Johnson is an attorney by profession. She says she had to think creatively about how to make the abortion laws work better for doctors by allowing them to intervene during complications. She also believes many of her Republican colleagues who voted for these laws did so without realizing the wide-ranging impact they would have on medical care. So a few weeks after the legislative session started at the beginning of the year, she introduced a bill. Originally, the bill broadly allowed doctors to provide medically necessary services. We actually filed this bill early on in the session, and nobody noticed it. 
which was by design. Since Democrats are in the minority in the Texas legislature, she had to figure out a way to get bipartisan support. The Senate sponsor of the bill was none other than Republican State Senator Brian Hughes, the author of SB8, what's known as the Bounty Hunter Law that allows private citizens to sue anyone for aiding and abetting a Texas abortion. Hughes did not respond to repeated requests for comment on this story. Johnson says he was a big help in lining up key supporters across the legislature. I'm glad that we were able to have honest conversations. This would not have happened without having him in the Senate get this through. The final bill is not as broad as the original. It outlines two conditions where doctors can provide abortions. Preterm premature rupture of membranes, the medical term for when someone's water breaks too early, and ectopic pregnancy, which happens when a fertilized egg implants somewhere besides the uterine lining. Yes, there are absolutely other pregnancy complications. In this moment, we could get the bipartisan agreement of the recognition of ectopic pregnancy and ruptured membrane. Johnson says she's proud of HB 3058. She says no other piece of legislation that addressed abortions even got a hearing. I think what was key about this legislation is that it did not have the term abortion in it. And because of that, it did not become a political football. It passed at the last possible moment, she says. And I am glad that the governor signed it. To me, it is a first step. I just very strongly feel we need to do more. The next regular legislative session won't be until 2025. In the meantime, a law that actually widens access to abortion in Texas, at least in some cases, will take effect September 1st. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, the Lionel Messi effect on soccer in Miami. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. Ups and downs on Wall Street for this first trading day of the week. The Dow dipped about a tenth of a percent. S&P gained ground about seven-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq rose as well. It was for the first time in five days, up more than one and a half percent. Doctors at Boston Medical Center have a new contract after four months of negotiations. The union that represents 700 resident physicians said it has a tentative deal that includes 20 percent raises over three years. Residents will also get an $11,000 living stipend and four weeks of paid vacation. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. For the first time this summer, concertgoers leaving Fenway Park will be able to get a free ride home on the T. Starting tonight at 10 o'clock after the Guns N' Roses concert, anyone going to the Kenmore station will not have to pay. Red Sox say that they will cover the fares. It's the start of a pilot program between the Sox and the MBTA in an attempt to reduce traffic in the neighborhood. In the forecast, nice and bright and kind of beautiful out there right now. Overnight tonight, a layer of clouds, intermittent showers, about 62 for a low. Tomorrow should be nice again. Sunny, breezy, temperatures in the mid to upper 70s. 86 degrees now in the Boston area at 420. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Yemen produces some of the finest honey in the world. Even years of civil war hasn't changed that. NPR's Fatma Tanis reports. As I was preparing for a reporting trip to Yemen, I spoke to a lot of Yemenis, refugees who fled the war and some experts too. One thing that unexpectedly came up a lot was the honey and how amazing it was. I was intrigued but a little skeptical too. It would be hard to find, I was told. The near-decade-long civil war has devastated much of Yemen's natural resources and its production infrastructure. With the help of our driver in Aden, we found a trusted beekeeper named Yusuf Alazazi. He tells us the best and rarest honey comes from bees who feed on cider trees, also known as a lot tree in English. It's an ancient tree, mainly in the mountainous parts of Yemen. Nowadays, he says, many honey shops sell counterfeit cider honey, which is made when bees are fed sugar water. But here in this shop, he has the real stuff hidden in a locked cabinet. Alazazi pulls out jugs filled with golden liquid. It's finally time for us to have a taste. But first, we're given a warning. If you taste it once, you will crave it a thousand times, Alazazi says. My colleague Claire Harbage and I decide to take the risk and try some of the best honey Yemen has to offer. Mm, this, is, this is the best one. Very floral, right? Floral, but like with caramel. Very caramelly. There's a rich undertone that's like nutty. Wow. Flavors hit the tongue in waves one after the other. It's smooth and there's no stinging in your throat from the sweetness. Alazazi has his own take on the taste. It's better than the best chocolate in the world. Nothing compares. But there's so much more to it than its taste. Researchers say cider honey has antibacterial and other healthy qualities similar to the more accessible manuka honey from New Zealand. Honey is a key ingredient in Yemeni cuisine, and this one in particular used to be abundant and popular around the country. But now, most Yemenis don't have access to this honey. In the past decade, climate change and the war wreaked havoc. Flash floods destroyed many cider trees. And Alazazi says beehives were damaged in the fighting by airstrikes and missile attacks. Now, the war has slowed down to a stalemate, and Alazazi is hopeful. Peace is coming soon, he says, and with it, Yemen will get its dignity and its honey back. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Aden, Yemen. Earlier this summer, social media exploded with news about a mysterious material known as LK-99. What is the big deal about the possible superconductor LK-99? LK-99 superconductor. LK-99. And you won't believe what this can mean. Magnetically levitating trains. There's all kinds of stuff. 
Online, it looked like LK99 might be about to change everything. But in laboratories all over the world, scientists were feeling confused. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports on what happened next. In late July, three Korean scientists posted a paper on a physics website. It claimed that a new material, LK99, could conduct electricity with no resistance at room temperature. Within days on social media, Silicon Valley executives were posting about it. Reddit blew up. It was everywhere. It just happened so fast. You know, I mean, it's incredible. Jean-Pierre Paglioni is director of the Quantum Materials Center at the University of Maryland. He's exactly the kind of researcher who should know all about LK99, but he'd never heard of it or seen a sample. I almost felt sort of pressured to try to produce something as quick as possible. So he put his team to work following a formula from the South Korean paper. As fast as they could, they made a few small chunks of LK99. He shows me some. They look like gray grains of rice on a little circuit board. Show you. So that's the purported LK99 material. You see there's two pieces here. Oh, interesting. So we have wires attached. We'll come back to this real-life sample in a minute. But first, let's talk about why everyone online got so excited. Richard Green is a physicist at Maryland who works with Paglioni. I only come in for the good experiments. Green is 85 years old and has spent much of his career studying something called superconductivity. Now, you've heard of regular conductivity. That's the process by which electricity flows through metal wires. Superconductivity is when that electricity flows with no resistance. It gets from point A to point B quickly and effortlessly. In principle, if you had a superconducting wire, you could run it from the West Coast to the East Coast and generate some electricity over there with a generator and put it right on the East Coast with no loss of energy. This would be huge. For example, solar panels on one side of the Earth could power the other side at nighttime. Of course, there'd be lots of other uses, too. Some have even suggested levitating trains because superconductors have the ability to float above magnets. Scientists have known about superconductors for more than a century. The problem is that to work, most superconductors have to be super cold. But this LK99... According to the paper, it could superconduct at room temperature. And as evidence, the authors posted a brief video which seemed to show LK99 floating above a magnet, just like a superconductor. Green says he thinks that short video is what made LK99 take off online. The fact that it's floating is what generates a lot of interest. Nobody cares about a resistance versus temperature curve. But a video of some floating stuff wasn't going to cut it for Green and Paglioni, so they asked postdoc Keenan Avers to make LK99 in their lab. And here I want to take a minute to make a public service announcement. There have been some videos online of people making LK99 at home. Do not do that. Avers says it contains molten lead, which is both toxic and dangerous. It will eat through quartz. It just eats right through it. It will diffuse through ceramic aluminum oxide crucibles. It will get drunk in a dive bar and punch your friend in the face. But he's a professional. He made some, the samples I mentioned earlier, and the team tried to test them. They hooked them up to some electrical connections and... We tried to get electric current through it. We just couldn't. That's right. The supposed superconductor couldn't even light a light bulb. This isn't even a bad conductor. It's just an insulator. 
In other words, this sample of LK99 is the farthest thing from a superconductor imaginable. Leslie Schaup is a chemist at Princeton University who's also made LK99 and found it does not superconduct. She spent a lot of the past few weeks on social media trying to calm everybody down. It's been an emotional roller coaster. There were moments I was annoyed, and then there were other moments where I thought this is funny. It's been frustrating at times. But on the other hand, lots of people got excited about physics and got excited about things which are very, very out there, right? So for me, that was also beautiful to see. These days, social media is filled with new posts and videos declaring LK99 a flop. Again, Jean-Pierre Paglioni. Oh, it's dead. It's decided. But he says he's just as frustrated by the poo-pooing as he was by the hype. This is not how science works. We, we make judgments, but of course... It takes a long time. It doesn't take a week. He's still studying LK99. There could turn out to be something special about it. It's just probably not going to give humanity a hovering train. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. And this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. The first legislation enacted in the U.S. that focuses on children performing on the Internet, in this case so-called child influencers, influencers that is, that story coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR. Our hazy sunshine today gives way to a layer of clouds tonight. Some showers off and on, about 62 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, pretty beautiful. Should be sunny, breezy, comfortable in the mid to upper 70s. Pretty much the same thing for Wednesday. Sunshine returns. Temperatures hover in the mid-70s. The Red Sox are still on the road. They've headed south to Houston for a four-game series with the Astros. It all starts tonight with James Paxton getting the nod against Christian Javier. Start time is 8-10. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, with local, handcrafted, and sustainably sourced furniture. Seven locations and a new one in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. What if you could taste the world's electric fields, hear vibrations in a leaf, or see magnetic currents guiding you home? I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me as science writer Ed Yong helps us perceive the world the way animals do, through new eyes, ears, antenna, and more. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Southern California is contending with flooding and downed trees and power lines one day after Hillary became the first tropical storm to hit in more than 80 years. Elizabeth Adams is meteorologist with the National Weather Service and says the storm made more history. Up in Santa Ana, which is in Orange County, um, their previous record was a trace of rainfall. They recorded 1.76 inches of rain yesterday, so we basically blew all of our uh, previous rainfall records out of the water. Desert areas, including Palm Springs and Death Valley, were especially hit hard, receiving months' worth of rain within 24 hours. Now, parts of South Texas are under tropical storm warnings as a new system forms in the Gulf of Mexico. Texas Public Radio's Marian Navarro reports it is expected to gather strength, reaching land by tomorrow. The National Hurricane Center has issued a tropical storm warning for areas across South Texas from Brownsville to Corpus Christi. A tropical storm watch was also issued from Port O'Connor to Sargent, Texas. Forecasters say heavy rainfall could range anywhere between 2 to 6 inches. Flooding along the South Texas coast is also possible.
The Texas Department of Emergency Management urges Texans in the affected areas to watch the forecasts and have an emergency plan in place. I'm Marianne Navarro in San Antonio. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are on their way to Maui due to arrive next hour with plans to comfort survivors of the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century. At least 114 people were killed earlier this month on Maui. The historic seaside city of Lahaina largely turned to ash. Hundreds of people remain unaccounted for, rebuilding efforts expected to take years. The Roman Catholic Archdiocese of San Francisco filed for bankruptcy today, saying the filing will put on on hold hundreds of lawsuits accusing the church of enabling child sex abuse, providing more time for settlement talks. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. As college students begin to move into their off-campus housing, the city of Boston's working to educate the new renters. Jessica Thomas is with Boston's Inspectional Services. She says because of a new state law, if someone wants to get rid of an old mattress, they can't just throw it out on the sidewalk. They want to call 311 ahead of time to schedule a mattress collection because the city is not just collecting mattresses without prior pickup notice. And for residents who live in a building with seven or more units should be instructed to contact their property manager. Thomas says inspectional services will have crews available 24 hours a day. And again, anyone with an issue can get help by calling 311. People in Jamaica Plain, Mission Hill, and Roslindale are being urged to be cautious after raccoons in the areas have tested positive for rabies. Boston's Animal Control urges pet owners to stay with their pets outside and have the animals updated on their rabies vaccinations. The city says there have not been any reports of people being exposed to rabies from the raccoons. State police say a South Shore teenager with a history of violence toward police is being charged with attacking a trooper. A 17-year-old Cohasset boy allegedly punched the trooper in the face during a traffic stop Friday night in Norwell and then ran off. The boy was a passenger in a car being driven by his mother. The trooper reports she had pulled the car over because it was speeding and discovered that the teenager had warrants out for his arrest. The suspect turned himself over to police on Sunday. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. Weather's looking pretty gorgeous around Boston this week. This evening, off and on showers, then some clouds around, temperatures in the low 60s. Tomorrow should be sunny, breezy, highs around 77 degrees, looking pretty much the same thing for Wednesday. Sunny and comfortable in the mid-70s. Still up in the mid-80s, 86 degrees right now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. If you scroll through Instagram or TikTok or YouTube, you'll probably come across a family or parenting vlog or two. It's officially summer, and that means it's about 100 degrees outside here in Tennessee. And chances are the kids are a big part of those videos. Here we go. You got it? Oh, come on up. Oh, it's getting deep. And you know, some of these videos, they earn money. Lots of money. Well, Illinois has a new law that's aimed at protecting the money that child influencers make or help their families make. It's the first legislation enacted in the U.S. that focuses on children performing on the Internet. And it comes in the middle of growing concerns about sharing children's lives online for massive audiences. For this week's All Tech Considered, we're talking with Fortessa Latifi. She's a writer for Teen Vogue, who's covered child influencers, and joins us now to talk about all of this. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so just to make sure that everyone's on the same page here, what exactly is a child influencer? Like, I'm assuming we're not talking about just kids whose parents occasionally post funny pictures of them online or videos, right? No. So it is strange because there are so many different kinds of child influencers. You have kids who are featured in family vlogging channels on YouTube to toddlers who have millions of followers on TikTok. But to simplify it, a child influencer is basically any child whose online presence generates profit. Okay. And to turn to this particular law in Illinois, it started with one very highly motivated child, right? Can you tell us the story? Yeah, this actually started as a high school project, which (laughs) I thought was so cool. So I talked to the young woman, Shreya Nala Matthew, who is now 16. She was 15 when she had a project in school and she started looking into how there were no protections for child influencers. And at the end of the project, her teacher was like, well, maybe you should reach out to legislators. And she told me, I guess I'll just shoot my shot. So she (laughs) reached out to her state senator who ended up introducing legislation based on the information that she gave him. It's pretty amazing. So what protections exactly does this new legislation in Illinois give child influencers? Sure. It entitles child influencers to a percentage of the earnings made from the content that they're featured in, and that money is then held in a trust until the child turns 18. Before this, there was no legislation addressing the earnings or labor of child influencers. And how enforceable do you think this will be? Like, what are the consequences if these things don't happen? The onus here is really on the parents, and what this law does is it gives children legislative ability to sue their parents if the money is not saved for them. Well, you have interviewed people who've grown up as child influencers. What did they tell you about their experiences or just their realizations over time as they were growing up about the impact of the publicity that their parents have given them? I think one of the fascinating things is how it changes the family dynamic. So one of my sources grew up on a family vlogging YouTube channel. All of the videos together have over a billion views. And she told me that her dad has said to her before, like, I am your dad, but I am also your boss. And at one point she said, you know, I don't want to do YouTube anymore. And her dad said, okay, well, that's fine. But mom and I are going to have to go back to work and we're going to have to sell this new house. And, you know, it kind of like really flips the dynamic of like the parent and the child in a really strange way. So among some of the people that you talk to, how are they reacting to this new law? 
I mean, they're heartened by the law and what they hope it signals, which is really this movement toward reconsidering the role of children online and what privacy means. But for a lot of them, this law and any laws that may follow in its wake are really too late. One source told me nothing my parents can do now will take back the years of work I had to put in. Childhood cannot be redone. You know, you get one shot at it. Right. That is Teen Vogue reporter for Tessa Latifi talking to us about Illinois' new law aimed at protecting child influencers. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. A major international soccer tournament ended over the weekend with a victory by the lowest-ranking U.S. team. Inter-Miami beat Nashville to win the League's Cup. Miami fans hope it's the first of many such victories with soccer superstar Lionel Messi. He joined the roster just about a month ago. Mateus Sanchez is with member station WLRN in Miami. Hi there. Hello. What makes Messi such a force? Well, this is a special player. I mean, we're talking uh, Tom Brady territory here. He's certainly the best soccer player of his generation. He's truly a global sensation. He's broken records in Europe over the last 20 years, and he plays what's the most beautiful incarnation of the game. He loves to attack and dribble past players. He has a vision of a quarterback when it comes to assists, and he scores many goals and often uh, quite sensational ones, as we've seen. Now, he's won the World Cup with Argentina just last year, and at 36, he's still near the peak of his powers. So really, his move to Miami shocked the world. It was a huge win for Miami, a team that was struggling badly, as you say, and for the MLS League. And really, it's a source of pride that he's chosen to live and play here. Have you been surprised by how quickly he seems to have transformed the team? Well, yes and no. Now, first, some context. You know, the team has really seemed kind of cursed since David Beckham, who is a soccer idol himself, announced into Miami in 2014. There's been endless issues on and off the field. Uh, They finally kicked off in 2020 for the first time under COVID protocols in a temporary stadium in a different county. Since then, they've reached the playoffs just once, and their permanent stadium in Miami is still a couple of years away. Uh, This season, they have the worst record in the league, and not just that, they have been pretty awful to watch. So uh, while I expected Messi to have a huge impact, the immediacy and the level of the turnaround has been truly extraordinary. Just days after signing, he came off the bench to score a beautiful last-minute winner. And now, four weeks later, they've lifted a trophy. Well, he has scored seven ga- uh, 10 goals in seven games. I mean, you really couldn't make it up. Uh, I'm not trying to denigrate U.S. soccer here, but do you think Messi mm-hmm. has had an easier time leading his team to victory because of the quality of the competition in this country? Well, look, uh, for almost 20 years, Messi has been key to winning countless titles and beating the best teams in the world in Europe. So, so we know he's world-class and he can lift those around him. But to do it with such a struggling team, it has to say something about the quality of the opposition here. This isn't basketball, you know. One or two players shouldn't have that much impact. But that extra second or two he now gets on the ball, it's like he's 25 again. And more broadly, soccer is the world's favorite sport. It's been less popular here in the U.S. What might Messi be able to do for the future of the sport in this country? It remains to be seen, but there's certainly high hopes here. In Messi, we have a living legend. You know, he will attract eyeballs, he'll bring more world-class players, and he'll raise the level of the game. Uh, Meanwhile, the MLS is finally an established league, and we have the Copa America in the U.S. next year, and the sport's biggest showcase, the World Cup, is coming to the U.S. in 2026. 
So it does seem to be a moment for soccer in the US and the world is paying attention. Uh, likely millions watch Messi score a stunning goal on Saturday in an exciting final and lift a trophy on US soil. Uh, what's not to love? That's Mateus Sanchez of WLRN in Miami. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. An ocean heat wave off of Florida is stressing coral to the point where they release life-sustaining algae and are turning white. It's known as coral bleaching. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said last week that coral bleaching has now reached reefs off eight countries. But scientists in Florida rescuing coral off the reef this month did get some rare good news. Some of the rescued corals made babies in their lab. WLRN's environmental reporter Jenny Stiletovich met up with one of the scientists working to save the coral. On a muggy South Florida night, coral scientist Andrew Baker cranked up the love songs at his University of Miami Rosensteel lab. Baker was hoping to get coral rescued from steamy waters and now safely stored in outdoor tanks in a more amorous mood. It worked yesterday. Since the heat wave began in July, bleaching has spread across Florida's reef and offshore nurseries where coral are grown to restock the reef. Baker and other scientists rescued thousands of still healthy colonies and stashed them in labs from Tampa to the Keys. We don't normally have this many corals in tanks, and the reason we have it is because of the rescue operation. Dive teams brought Baker dozens of milk crates piled with coral pulled from a nursery the week before. He and others are trying to preserve genetic diversity, and they're trying to protect years of work breeding coral to withstand oceans warmed by human-caused climate change. Spawning season began in early August. Now Baker hopes to save some unborn coral. So... In a sense, it would be better if these were out there on the reef, but it might be more, ironically, more difficult to collect spawn from them. Coral spawn like fish by releasing eggs and sperm into the water to fertilize. That happens just once a year. Five years ago, scientists figured out how to get the coral to do that in the lab, a major feat in their efforts to outpace warming oceans. Baker is hoping to get the coral to spawn again on this night, but after a half hour with no action, he switches to Marvin Gaye. And within minutes, we got spawn. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. Someone hold the light over the right over the spawn. Where were they? Students and other researchers locate the tiny pink sacks using red lights and big droppers. So each one of those little dots represents dozens or, or possibly even hundreds of eggs. And it's all bundled together with sperm. Some of the sacks will be separated and frozen, and some will be raised and replanted on the reef once the heat wave subsides in the coming months. So what was that magic song? It was your precious love. Yeah, Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell. Now Noah scientists worry coral bleaching could spread across the globe. So Baker hits play again. For NPR News, I'm Jenny Stiletovich in Miami. And now I've got a song to sing Telling the world about the joy you 
On tomorrow's morning edition, listen to an exploration of how California could lose most of its beaches and why that would matter to inland areas too. Be sure to tune in. Just ask your smart speaker to play your local station or turn on your radio. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to it here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, President Biden is heading to Maui to talk with survivors of the wildfires that scorched part of the island. And meanwhile, we'll find out what Hurricane Hillary brought to Southern California and how it differed from expectations. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. The Lego Group announced today that it will be moving its U.S. headquarters into the development being built over the Mass Turnpike in the Back Bay. The Danish toy company said it will lease space in one of the new buildings at the intersection of Boylston, Newbury, and Mass Ave. Lego announced earlier this year that it would move its America's head office from Connecticut to Boston in 2026. Join us Monday, August 28th, a week from today, for our first board game night at City Space. Bring a bunch of your friends to compete with or come solo to meet new players. Free tickets are available at wbur.org events. In the forecast, hazy sunshine right now, kind of bright in certain parts of the area. Could have a few showers overnight tonight, clouds through the night, lows about 62. Then for tomorrow, sunny, breezy, more comfortable temperatures in the mid to upper 70s. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers, and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Molecular biologist Nancy Hopkins was 19 when she began to meet her destiny. She walked into a classroom at Harvard to hear a lecture by James Watson, one of the scientists who discovered the structure of DNA. And at the end of the hour, I was a convert to this science. So I didn't think about being... What would it mean exactly to be a girl who wanted to do that? I just knew I had to do that. That's how she described her early career for the Infinite History Project at MIT, the same institution that turned her into a reluctant activist for gender equality. By the 1990s, Hopkins had tenure on the faculty at MIT. She had ambitious plans for genetic research, but she faced hurdle after hurdle in getting the same opportunities, even workspace, as men. So she did what a scientist does. She quantified it. So I was, began collecting data and measuring lab space with a tape measure so I could convince my administrators that I deserved to have an additional 200 square feet of space. But nothing happened as quickly as I wanted it to happen. Then she talked to other women. They also documented what they went through. And it grew into a landmark study that found widespread discrimination against female professors at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The idea that they had been able to collect this information and make their case to the university 
really struck me as kind of a model of social change. That's journalist Kate Zernike, who was first to report on the discrimination study for the Boston Globe in 1999. She revisited the story in a book called The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. I talked to Zernike earlier this year about why Hopkins and her colleagues were at first hesitant to complain. It starts with small slights, things that you probably wouldn't complain about, but gradually over time, they realize that it starts to add up to, you know, less money, less space in the lab, all sorts of things that really do hinder their ability to do science. So it was really that they were so passionate about their science that they didn't complain until these problems were really getting in the way of them doing science. Can I just ask, you are an incredibly respected reporter, but you are not a scientist. And this mm. book has some really complicated science <laughs> in it. How did you wrap your head around like the real hard science that's in here? Yeah, you know, well, for one thing, I have to say I had great teachers in Nancy and the other people who she was doing science with. So they were really patient with me in explaining. But it was also really important to get that science right. I think what really helped me in the end was just to see all these experiments like a story and to walk people through that story. One of the details that I found so interesting was you say these women sort of thought that they were alone. And one reason for that is that the trailblazing women didn't want to talk about the challenges they faced because they didn't want to discourage others. But that had the effect of making those who came after them thinking, well, nobody else is going through this. It must just be me or it must be my imagination. Right, exactly. And that's one of the reasons that I called the book The Exceptions. Not only were these women exceptional in their talent and their brilliance, but when they faced these problems, they thought, well, this is just me. It's just a situation. It's just a personality conflict. It wasn't until really late in the game in their careers that they thought, oh, no, this is happening to other women. And one of the reasons they couldn't see that is that there were so few of them. You know, you said that one reason this story appealed to you is that it was such a model for social change. But at one point, your main character, Nancy Hopkins, faces a fork in the road. Mm. There's a choice she has to make about whether to file a lawsuit against MIT. And I think it kind of points to a larger question about whether it's more productive to make change from inside or outside an institution, work within its confines, or take a more confrontational approach collaborate or go adversarial. So did writing this book make you think differently about that question more broadly? Absolutely. And I think particularly, you know, I was writing this from 2018 until last year, and there's been so much social movement, social change, social protest in those years. And Nancy didn't get everything she wanted in the end, but they really were able to work from within the system. I think some of the men in the book would argue that you have to work within the system, but of course they were allies. So I think this really speaks to finding those allies. How do you view the men who created and upheld the culture of discrimination? I couldn't quite tell if they were malicious or oblivious mm. or what. <laughs> That's a great question. So I wanted to put this in context and just show how everyone was thinking about this issue at the time. I think maybe those men and also the women were really victims of their time and victims of the context. We just weren't seeing how outrageous some of this stuff was. You know, one thing, for instance, in 1979, Nancy wants to teach a class with another man, and they're excited about it. And the head of her department, who's a very thoughtful guy who cares deeply about good teaching, says, you can't do that because undergraduates won't take information from a woman at the front of a lecture hall. And at the time, Nancy agreed with him because she thought he was right. 
And I think there's a tendency to dismiss the idea of unconscious bias. We all think, oh yeah, I know what that is. I don't have that. But I think this book can remind us that in fact, we are all struggling with this. We're all pushing back on it at all times. So what's the larger takeaway here? That if if you think this is happening, you're probably right, even if people tell you it isn't, or don't settle for reassurances that everything's fine if you know in your heart that it's not? Like, how do we generalize from this experience that these women had? I think there are a couple of things. One, again, as I say, I think it just helps to understand or to see through someone else's eyes, in this case, Nancy's, how this happens and how it accumulates. But I think the lessons are that, yes, we do need to speak up about this. And I also think you don't have to do it in an adversarial way. These women went about it in a very scientific, almost clinical way, and they really made their case persuasively. MIT, as you say, did not have to be forced into a lawsuit. They did the right thing. I think the other lesson is, you know, this country is now facing yet another debate about affirmative action. And these women were almost all of them affirmative action hires in the 70s, which was the first big push for it. And they all really trusted in the meritocracy. They all thought that if they just did their science, merit would rise to the top. And what they found is that a true meritocracy does not really exist. Hmm. You know, the book briefly touches on the progress that MIT made after the report. But I'm curious about the present day. Do you know how MIT is doing now on some of these questions? Yeah, it's actually quite incredible. So MIT is now essentially, as of this year, run by women. So the head of the corporation, the president, the director of research, the provost, the chancellor, dean of science are all women. In the School of Engineering, which is sort of the marquee school at MIT, uh, there are eight departments and five of them are led by women. So that is incredibly striking. But the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine did a study in 2018, and they found that 50% of science faculty women felt that they had been sexually harassed, but they weren't talking about overt sexual assaults or even sexual coercion. It really was the sort of intellectual marginalization, assumptions that women couldn't do science. And that is really the final hurdle for this fight. That was Kate Zernike talking about her book, The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Policy Genius, an online marketplace committed to modernizing the life insurance industry. Agents are available to compare life insurance quotes from multiple companies side by side. Learn more at policygenius.com. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From BritBox, with the new season of Silent Witness, every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Well, clouds started the day today and they'll finish it too. But right now we have bright skies, at least in the Boston area. Some scattered showers possible tonight. Temperatures in the low 60s. Tomorrow should be sunny and dry, light breezes with highs a little bit lower than they've been today. Should top out at about 77 degrees tomorrow. 85 degrees now in the Boston area at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton, now enrolling for the upcoming year, a nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's been a tense couple of days in Southern California as Tropical Storm Hillary blew into the region. Los Angeles was tested, but we came through it. And we came through it with minimal impacts considering what we endured. Coming up, a comparison, what residents of California experienced versus what they were told to expect. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Republicans are investing in Wisconsin. The state will hold the first Republican debate, and the GOP convention is next year. But how much of battleground state is it in 2024? And a key White House border strategy is going on trial. The Biden administration has been using a provision of law to admit large numbers of non-citizens into the U.S. Critics say it's illegal. The idea of using parole to admit numbers that reach the thousands is preposterous. It's 501 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Southern California is drying out after showers from Tropical Storm Hillary. A roughly 30-mile segment of Interstate 10 near hard-hit Palm Springs remains shut down due to water and debris on the roadway. The storm shattered rainfall records across the region, as we hear from reporter Matt Gillum. Hillary blew nearly every daily rainfall total in Southern California out of the water. Downtown L.A. received just about two and a half inches of rain Sunday, making it the wettest August day ever in that area. It trounced the old record from 1977 when Tropical Cyclone Doreen blew through. Most areas around Metro L.A. got two to four inches of rain, which caused some streets to flood and even led to water getting into some shops along the city's famous Melrose Avenue. The region's deserts were particularly hard hit. Palm Springs got about half a year's worth of rain from Hillary, and notoriously arid Death Valley received nearly a year's worth of precipitation within 24 hours. For NPR News, I'm Matt Gillum. President Biden is expected to land at this hour in Hawaii to provide support for victims of a massive wildfire there that has claimed at least 114 lives. The president and the first lady making the flight to tour the historic city of Lahaina, which was damaged by the flames. At least some 2,000 people were still without power at last word, with water in parts of Maui still not safe to drink. Lawyers for special counsel Jack Smith are urging a judge to bring former President Donald Trump to trial in Washington, D.C. promptly 
NPR's Kerry Johnson reports federal authorities want to see the election conspiracy case move quickly and fairly. Special counsel prosecutor Molly Gaston says delaying Trump's federal trial in D.C. until 2026 would not serve the public interest. She says lawyers for the former president are exaggerating how much time it will take to review millions of documents in the case. And she says Trump's comparisons of those stacks of paper to the height of the Washington Monument or the book War and Peace are a distraction since many of the pages are duplicates or already public. Trump wants to delay the D.C. case until after the next presidential election, where he's the GOP frontrunner. A judge will set a trial date at a hearing next week. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Stocks enter the day's mixed. NPR's David Gurr reports. NVIDIA, which makes chips that are widely used by companies in AI, is scheduled to report earnings on Wednesday. Its shares were up more than 7%, and shares of one of its competitors, Advanced Micro Devices, also closed higher. Other tech stocks also rose. Meanwhile, a sell-off in U.S. government bonds has worsened. The yield on 10-year treasuries reached its highest level in 16 years, and mortgage rates have continued to rise. Ahead of an important speech, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell is scheduled to deliver on Friday at a conference of economists and other central bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. David Gura, NPR News. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Healy administration will use federal pandemic relief aid to pay the student loans of a few thousand health care workers. In exchange, the workers must commit to spending at least four years in certain Massachusetts health care jobs. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports the mass repay program is part of an effort to stabilize shortages in the health care workforce. Nearly 3,000 people who work in primary care or behavioral health will receive loan repayments. They include psychiatrists, social workers, and nurses. Almost half are people of color. Michael McDonald is a behavioral health clinician at Brockton Neighborhood Health Center and spoke at a press conference today. McDonald said without the loan repayments, he couldn't afford to stay in his job. Programs like Mass Repay have allowed me to stay in this field in spite of things like inflation, COVID, day-to-day expenses, and debt. The state plans another $120 million in loan relief in the coming months. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. New Hampshire public safety officials are warning about the dangers of the state's rivers. Within the last week, two people from Massachusetts drowned in the White Mountains rivers while trying to rescue their children. It was in two different incidents. New Hampshire Fish and Game Colonel Kevin Jordan says this summer's heavy rains have made the rivers colder, deeper, and faster. We're recommending to people that this isn't the summer to swim in those rivers. It's probably a better idea to go to places where there's sanctioned swimming places uh, and or lifeguards, or at least take the time and, and effort to put personal flotation devices on the kids especially. Jordan's expecting an increase in the number of drownings in New Hampshire this summer. For the first time this summer, concertgoers leaving Fenway Park will be able to get a free ride home on the tee starting tonight at 10 o'clock after the Guns N' Roses concert at Fenway. Anyone entering the Kenmore MBTA station will not need to pay. 
The Red Sox say the team is covering the fares. This marks the start of a pilot program between the Sox and the MBTA in an attempt to reduce traffic in the neighborhood. 84 degrees right now in the Boston area should fall to about the low 60s overnight tonight. Look for some light showers possible before 8 o'clock and then just a lot of clouds around. Tomorrow should be bright and breezy, highs about 77 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 507. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. In a moment, we'll hear about the rocky path that Spain traveled on their way to winning the Women's World Cup and other memories from that tournament. But first, we're going to start right here in Los Angeles, where a lot of people, including myself, spent the last couple days really anxious about the arrival of Tropical Storm Hillary. It was the first tropical storm to hit Southern California in more than 80 years. The storm dropped record breaking rainfall on a region that's just not used to that, as much as seven inches in some mountain regions and up to four inches in lower-lying areas. To talk more about how Tropical Storm Hillary affected the Southern California region, we're joined now by NPR's Liz Baker, who, like me, rode out the storm in L.A. yesterday. Hey, Liz. Hey, Elsa. So I want to talk about how seriously people here were taking this because I went to the grocery store Vons, you know, on Saturday Mm -hmm. to stock up on drinking water. I wasn't sure if my water supply would run out. And I get to Vons, the parking lot is packed. Like every cash register had a line snaking down the grocery store aisle. People had carts full of gallons of water. I mean, people were so anxious about this storm. But now that it's left California, tell us what was the extent of the damage? Well, so far, not nearly, excuse me, not nearly as much as we feared. Mm -hmm. In her press conference today, Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass said there were actually no known deaths or injuries caused by the storm, which is amazing if you think about how big it was. Um, Although I do want to put an enormous asterisk on that because it's still really early after the storm. There's a very real possibility that we're going to get reports of casualties in the coming days. Um, And we do know that at least one person did die in Mexico. Right. And, you know, some of the areas that were worst affected are really remote, high desert and mountain communities. And we're not really going to be able to hear some of those scary stories. You know, we're hearing some of those come out today. But as those areas become more accessible, we'll start to hear more of those. But in general, the moon in Southern California today is one of cautious relief. Here's LAUSD Superintendent Alberto Carvalho, who I think summed it up really well. Uh, Some will say that we dodged a bullet. Uh, I will say we dodged a weather bomb. Yeah, and uh, Carvalho used to be the superintendent at Miami-Dade, so he, right. he would know. <laughs> no stranger to hurricanes. Yeah, uh, but school is out today while crews inspect the buildings for damage and make sure roads are clear enough for buses to pass um, because there are still some road closures, especially in the valleys and out towards the high desert. There are some pretty remarkable videos online of mud flows and raging waters. There's been some power outages, especially in Riverside County, which is inland and extends far into the desert beyond Joshua Tree to the Arizona border. Um, a couple cities out that way reported 911 outages, and there was a report of a flooded hospital out there as well. Um, my colleague at KCVR, Madison Ament in the Inland Empire, reports mudslides, debris flows, and flash flooding resulted in a shelter-in-place and then evacuation orders last night in San Bernardino. 
Uh, and those were primarily communities mm. that were near the 2020 El Dorado fire burn scar, which is extra dangerous because the water just runs right off those burn right. scars. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, for the most part, a lot of this region did manage to avoid catastrophe. Do we know why it ended up not being as bad as expected? A little bit. Well, I spoke with Daniel Swain just a little while ago. He's a climate scientist at UCLA. And I asked him if in hindsight, maybe the forecast was a little overhyped. And he told me it was actually the opposite. Especially given that the prediction was to exceed August, in some cases, all-time summer record rainfall levels in Southern California and Southern Nevada. And the fact that that happened, that's a pretty big forecast success. Yeah, so those rainfall totals were just crushed, like all over the place. We've gotten record August rainfall, record summer rainfall, some places record all-time rainfall. But that forecast is what enabled Southern California residents to brace for the worst. Because the message, even even days before, was stay home, stay off the roads, get prepared. And that really does seem to be heated, which... I, I was really surprised to see that. So was I. Are, yeah, as you said, I mean, these are the people who will face down an earthquake without sweating. So, exactly. Um, yeah. An earthquake, by the way, yesterday, I did not even feel. But anyway. <laughs> I didn't feel it either, but I still got under my desk. I'm not messing around with earthquakes. <laughs> Don't blame you. <laughs> yeah, but earthquakes might be common around here, but tropical cyclones are relatively super rare. There's been maybe two to five that we know of ever. Um, the last one to hit was in the 1930s. And so I think that, plus seeing how damaging hurricanes and tropical storms have been in other parts of the country, made Californians really take this a lot more seriously um, than than maybe they would have if this had been a few years ago, for instance. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so as you know, as you said, we don't know the extent of the damage from this storm yet. But I am thinking especially about all the unhoused people in L.A. who are so vulnerable in weather like this. How did they fare? How much do we know? We don't know a lot. I know that the um, Homeless Services Authority is going around trying to figure that out today. There's eight shelters for unhoused people that are open. Um, And they also started a really early effort on Thursday, long before the rain started, to get the word out to people who were camped in areas along riverbanks and along creek beds, because those are really dangerous spots where normally it doesn't look so bad, but once that water comes down, you better be out of there. That's right. That is NPR's Liz Baker in Los Angeles. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you, Elsa. The Women's World Cup wrapped up over the weekend with an unlikely victory from Spain. The team defeated England thanks in part to a first-half goal from 23-year-old Olga Carmona. Let's take one last look at the drama of the last month with Meg Linehan. She covers women's soccer and is a senior writer with The Athletic. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me again. So I said Spain's victory was unlikely. What stands out to you most about how they ended up taking this? Yeah, I mean, the... the story around Spain is so fascinating because this is a team that came into this World Cup kind of fully embroiled in a rebellion against its own federation. And you had players that had honestly refused to participate in the World Cup saying, I'm going to stand by my morals instead of playing. And then you had some players who had come back to participate in this team. There's a kind of an open fight between them and their own head coach. They've gone to the federation to ask for help and then they proceed 
through this World Cup, and there is this this massive speed bump of a 4 nothing loss at the hands of Japan in the group stage, but then they proceed to show that they are, are ready for the big stage. They've had a huge amount of success on the Youth World Cup stage and now have won U-17s, U-20s, and the Senior World Cup all does, in the span of a year. Does the fact that they won, even though they didn't like the coach or the team leadership, kind of contradict a lot of what we've heard about what it takes to... The, take a, a, tro- a trophy like this? I mean, that's the f- strange thing about women's soccer is that this is really nothing new. You think about the U.S. women's national team in 2019, they were in the middle of suing their own federation over equal pay and equal working conditions. So it is honestly sort of par for the course of, of women's football globally that players are able to play at the highest level while fighting a much larger battle off of the field. Looking at the whole tournament, um, which player on any team impressed you the most? I mean, I think the breakout star of this World Cup was Linda Caucedo from Colombia. Colombia really, I think, exceeded everybody's expectations. But this is a player who played in the U-17, U-20, and then Senior Women's World Cup. So she is by far going to be a, a player that everybody is talking about globally for the next four or five years at minimum. And what was your favorite moment? Honestly, just being on the ground, it felt so much like a World Cup and the fact that you could get into a taxi or an Uber and everybody immediately wanted to talk to you about the soccer. And it wasn't a Women's World Cup. It was just a World Cup. And it felt so different compared to other World Cups that I've been at. Just the way that it captured Australia, the Matildas really took over a nation. They, They went on this amazing run. Sam Kerr, a global superstar of the sport, was hurt, made her comeback scores i think her goal was the goal of the tournament and it gave this nation hope for all of eight minutes before they got knocked out but it it really was it it was a very special world cup in a lot of ways what do you attribute that shift to that whether you're talking to taxi drivers or fans it wasn't the women's world cup it was a world cup yeah i just think that we have finally gotten to this point where we are seeing the tides turn with a fundamental respect for the sport. And obviously I think the Spain story is kind of a perfect symbol of how much work still has to be done in terms of respect and people in power and all these sorts of things. But when you actually just get out there and and talk to people, they get captured in how exciting the game is and and what it's like to actually attend and, and watch. But it really it felt different in a way that I was not personally expecting. And I've I've been around this game for a couple decades now. Well, if you look ahead to the 2024 Olympics, what does this competition tell you about what we might see there? I mean, rankings mean nothing, right? It's super exciting. <laughs> we saw the U.S. get knocked out. No, the Germany US, what didn't make it them? past the group stage. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a that's an hour long program for us to get into. But U.S. getting knocked out, Germany, Brazil, Canada, all of these massive teams not making it to the next stage, and you get a story like Colombia or the Matildas advancing. So it's going to be, I think, an extremely exciting 2024 Olympics, and it's going to be an even bigger, even better 2027 World Cup. If only we knew where it was. So it's anyone's game, sounds like. Yep, 100%. It's Meg Linehan, senior writer at The Athletic. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes, a key White House border strategy is going on trial. On Wall Street, ups and downs today for this first trading day of the week. The Dow dipped about a tenth of a percent. S&P gained ground about seven-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq rose for the first time in five days, up more than one and a half percent. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. The town of Plymouth is starting to welcome cruise ships into its harbor. Over the weekend, passengers disembarked to tour the town. Plymouth Tourism head Lee Filson says two more cruise ships are expected to arrive this season. Filson says these are smaller vessels compared to larger ships that pull into Boston Harbor. American Cruise Lines recently built new ships that are smaller, that fit well into smaller ports. And so it was just, it was a marriage made in heaven. Filson says the cruise ships can now be accommodated after the harbor in Plymouth was dredged. The forecast is coming up. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Still a pretty nice day out there overnight tonight. Off and on showers, some clouds move in, temperatures pull down to about the low 60s. Then for tomorrow, sunshine once again breezy, not nearly as warm as today was, about 10 degrees lower, 77 for a high tomorrow, 85 degrees now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Republican Party is essentially bookending its presidential primary in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The first GOP debate is there this Wednesday, and Republicans plan to return to Milwaukee for their nominating convention next summer. We have a look at politics in the state from NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell with reporting from Mayan Silver of member station WUWM in Milwaukee. Hi, Kelsey. Hi there. Wisconsin is a swing state, but there are several crucial swing states in any election, including this one. So why are Republicans specifically coming to Wisconsin? So Wisconsin has been at the center of some very critical moments in the past few elections. It used to be considered part of the Blue Wall, which is a term for a block of Midwestern states that reliably voted for Democrats in presidential races since the late 1980s. But if you look a little deeper, the state has always been closely divided, with Republicans winning statewide races, including governors and Senate seats quite regularly. And then former President Trump won the state in 2016. But in the years since, Democrats have really rallied in Wisconsin. And in the interviews we did for this story, most Republican strategists acknowledged that Trump could be a drag on the party next year. That and the looming issue of abortion. So Mayan has seen that play out with voters in Wisconsin. Let's listen to her report. At a farmer's market in Brookfield, 
a traditionally Republican suburb of Milwaukee, there are a lot of women pushing strollers, lugging bags of sweet corn, or corralling kids with dripping popsicles. Jen Koch is one of them. The registered nurse voted for Mitt Romney in 2012, but switched to Democratic presidential candidate since then, driven by the issue of reproductive rights. I don't think it's anyone's business. I, you know, I don't think that you should be leg- legislating healthcare decisions like that. That should be a private decision. It doesn't affect the people who are screaming the loudest. The state currently has a near total ban on abortion. And as it's winding its way through the courts, abortion remains a big issue here. It's one of the reasons suburban voters like Koch are increasingly voting Democratic, says Charles Franklin, director of the Marquette Law School poll. The weakening Republican support in the suburbs is not only a reaction to Donald Trump, though he's part of it. It represents a broader movement. Franklin says, one, the suburbs are diversifying racially and economically. But it is also, I think, um, that the modern Republican Party has stronger appeal among very conservative and rural voters. Some call Wisconsin a tale of two states. There are the dairy farming, soybean growing rural areas in the north and west, deep red and heavily backing Donald Trump. And then There are the vote-rich urban areas around Milwaukee and Madison. Democrats win these areas, but of course, there are Republicans here too. Like Jim Reese. He's from the suburbs around Milwaukee and is a Trump supporter. Well, he will be our next president. No matter what, all the indictments he has, he's going to crush them because we have a very corrupt government right now. But Republicans here know that not all voters are like Reese. And to do better in the suburbs, they'll have to go beyond culture war issues and repeating falsehoods about election fraud. Every second that we spend talking about the 2020 election is a a second lost because we're not talking about the economy. And at the end of the day, voters always vote their pocketbook first. That's Bill McCashin, a Wisconsin Republican strategist. McCashin says Republicans also need to get better at organizing, especially since the elections are so close here. The state's two U.S. senators are of opposing parties. The legislature is Republican-led while the governor is a Democrat. And presidential races are consistently tight. Here's Ben Wickler, chair of the Wisconsin Democrats. The thing everyone should understand about Wisconsin is that it is, most of the time, incredibly close, even when you think it can't possibly be close. Four of the last six presidential elections have had margins of victory under one percentage point. Democrats scored a big win this past spring, easily electing a liberal to the state Supreme Court with abortion as a driving issue. The question going forward is whether Democrats will be able to replicate that enthusiasm or if Republicans rebound in 2024. That's my on Silver reporting from Milwaukee. And NPR's Kelsey Snell is still with us. Kelsey, as we heard, Republicans are staking a lot on Wisconsin. Can they rebound? Well, it is truly as close as Mayan is describing. And Wisconsin is on the minds of every Republican I spoke with, including, of course, uh, Wisconsin governor and former Republican presidential candidate Scott Walker. So he told me that the margins are so slim in this state that on average, less than one vote per ward is the difference between who wins and who loses. Then the key 
really statewide is the swing boats are in the mid-sized industrial towns by and large. They're, you know, they're scattered, but, but that's where the biggest concentration of those voters are. You know, it's expensive and difficult to turn out voters outside of urban areas. It takes a lot of organizing and it takes a lot of time. And so if organizing is so difficult, what's the GOP's plan? You know, they all say the economy has to be the centerpiece of their message. They also need to make up the gaps Democrats created in voter registration around college towns and cities. And they need to really turn out white, blue-collar workers. And Democrats are also keying in on Mm -hmm. Wisconsin. President Biden was just there. What's the Democratic Party's plan? Every strategist I talked to from both parties said the state Supreme Court race earlier this year that Mayan mentioned was a bit of a gift to Democrats. Take Celinda Lake. She's a pollster for Democrats, and she worked on President Biden's campaign last cycle. What's good about Wisconsin and, and what is our ace in the back of our pocket is that the Supreme Court races helped to register, turn out, and draw the contrast on abortion. And um, that just has to be tapped into again. It doesn't have to be created. She also said abortion is an issue that is not going away. And there is mounting proof that the issue mobilizes Democrats more than it does Republicans. NPR's Kelsey Snell, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And we also heard reporting there from WUWM's Mayan Silver. On tomorrow's program, a hotter planet means an increased risk of intense wildfires. In some states, National Guard troops help combat those fires, but it's really risky. I didn't know what I was getting myself into, and that probably that's probably our craziest fire we've ever had here. And I, I was just had to ask the captain, like, hey, this is how every fire is? They're like, no, this one's different. So how's the National Guard dealing with the evolving threat of climate change? Well, NPR's Quill Lawrence visits with one group that's been fighting fires in California to learn more. That story tomorrow on All Things Considered. You can listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local member station by name. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports first pitch tonight in Houston is at 8:10 as the Red Sox and Astros start up a four-game series. Patriots coach Bill Belichick says that cornerback Isaiah Bolden is in good spirits despite some scary moments on the field over the weekend. Bolden was injured in the fourth quarter of Saturday's exhibition game against the Packers in Green Bay. He went down after he collided with a teammate. He was carried off the field and was hospitalized overnight for observation. No word on the nature of his injuries, but Belichick says Bowden was able to fly back home with the team. Isaiah came back with us. It was good to see him. Um, um, you know, had an opportunity to, to talk to him. Um, you know, he's alert. The Pats have their final preseason game on Friday night against the Titans. This is WBUR. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. 
What if you could taste the world's electric fields, hear vibrations in a leaf, or see magnetic currents guiding you home? I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me as science writer Ed Yong helps us perceive the world the way animals do, through new eyes, ears, antenna, and more. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Schools out in the nation's second-largest district, Los Angeles, as Southern California contends with what amounted to record rainfall that led to flooding and mudslides in parts. Desert areas especially were unable to absorb months' worth of rain left by Tropical Storm Hillary. NPR's Julia Simon reports. It's really the areas east of Los Angeles, southeast of Los Angeles, places like Indio, Palm Springs, Rancho Mirage. These are desert communities, mountainous communities that aren't used to this type of rain. The infrastructure isn't built for it. It's built for the rainfall patterns of the past, the climate of the past. And so we're seeing huge amounts of flooding. An abnormally hot Pacific Ocean fed the first tropical storm to hit the area in more than 80 years. Former President Donald Trump plus 18 other defendants indicted in Georgia over efforts to interfere with the 2020 election result must surrender at the Fulton County Jail this week. Friday is the deadline. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Greenglass reports Trump's bond was set at $200,000, while for the others, it is still pending. Lawyers will likely negotiate bond terms in advance, so these defendants don't have to spend long in the Rice Street Jail awaiting trial. The jail's under a civil rights investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice. Criminal defense attorney Bob Rubin says booking includes a mugshot and fingerprints. Despite saying they're going to treat them the same as everybody else, they're going to make sure no one's going to get hurt in this jail. It would look really bad. So I'm sure that the sheriff's office is going to make every effort to segregate them from other inmates who may be dangerous. Rubin says bond conditions consider factors like flight risk, danger to the community, and the likelihood of a defendant intimidating witnesses. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. You're listening to NPR News. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky received an extended standing ovation in the Danish parliament today. Then thousands of people attended his public address in Copenhagen. Terry Schultz reports Zelensky also got a pledge from Denmark and the Netherlands to send F-16 fighter jets to his country. In a public speech in Copenhagen, Ukrainian President Zelensky praised Denmark's contributions to Ukraine, both in weapons and in aid for reconstruction. He's long been asking for the F-16s the Danish and Dutch governments have now agreed to send and says he's confident Ukraine can win the war against Russia with continued support from its allies. Together, we prove that life is a value, that people matter, freedom matters, Europe matters. One condition of the donation of F-16s is that Ukraine will only use them over its own territory to drive out Russian forces. But the Russian ambassador to Denmark nevertheless says this decision will escalate the conflict. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz. President Biden has arrived in Hawaii. He will stay for the next few hours to assess wildfire damage, while Canada is contending with a record number of wildfires this year. In British Columbia, firefighters say they're making headway on blazes that are threatening the West Kelowna area. And farther north, the city of Yellowknife is virtually empty. Almost all of its 20,000 residents evacuated ahead of an encroaching blaze. I'm Amy Held in Washington. It's NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A group of doctors at Boston Medical Center has a new contract after four months of negotiations. The union that represents more than 700 resident physicians says it has a tentative deal that includes 20 percent raises over three years. Residents will also get an $11,000 living stipend and four weeks of paid vacation. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has raised more than $400,000 in campaign money over the summer so far. Finance records show that in the past year, Healy's campaign has taken in more than $5.5 million. And people in Jamaica Plain, Mission Hill, and Roslindale are being urged to be cautious after raccoons in the communities tested positive for rabies. Boston's Animal Control urges residents to stay with their pets outside and have the animals updated on their rabies vaccinations. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. Could have some showers off and on over the next few hours. Then overnight tonight, lots of clouds, temperatures in the low 60s. Tomorrow should be pretty lovely. Sunny, breezy, highs about 77. More of the same for Wednesday. Sunny and comfortable, temperatures in the mid-70s. 83 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station, This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. After years of record apprehensions at the U.S.-Mexico border, the White House is trying a new strategy to discourage migrants from crossing illegally using a mix of carrots and sticks. This approach is being challenged in court, and now a case brought by Texas and other states is heading for trial, as NPR's Joel Rose reports. It was the first week of January when the White House announced a new way for migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela to come to the U.S. legally. And Valerie Lavius wasted no time. I was like, God, you answer prayers. I am so grateful. And I jumped on it. I literally applied the 17th of January. Lavius was born in Haiti and came to the U.S. when she was 18. She is now a U.S. citizen and a teacher in South Florida. For years, Lavius has been trying to bring her brother and nephew to join her as conditions in Haiti got worse and worse. Then she found out that Texas and other states are suing to block the new program. I heard about the fact that they're trying to cancel it. My heart sunk to my feet. Finally, Lavius's brother and nephew were approved. They flew to join her in Florida earlier this month. All anybody wants who lives in unrest is to have peace, to have some family time, to be able to get the basic needs met instead of living in fear of death, fear of hunger. Lavius's brother and nephew are among the more than 180,000 migrants from Haiti, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela who have been admitted to the U.S. under the new program, with permission to live and work here for two years. 
The Biden administration says this is part of a broader strategy to discourage illegal immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border by opening up new legal alternatives. Here's Blas Nunez Neto, a top immigration official at the Department of Homeland Security in May. We have um, overseen the, the most significant expansion in lawful pathways for people to come to the United States uh, in many decades. But the president's critics are not convinced. He's just making this up. It's his own law, his own rules. That's Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton speaking to Fox News in January, shortly before filing a lawsuit to block the new program. Paxton accuses Biden of admitting hundreds of thousands of migrants into the U.S. with no legal basis. And he doesn't run it through Congress. He doesn't run it through anybody's. It's his own deal. The Biden administration says it does have a legal basis for what it's doing, an authority known as parole. In the past, presidents of both parties have used parole to admit non-citizens into the country, sometimes in big numbers. Still, no administration has relied on parole programs quite this much to admit more than half a million people into the country, including lots of Ukrainians and Afghans. This administration has just punched through the envelope. Mark Krikorian is with the Center for Immigration Studies, a think tank in Washington that advocates for lower levels of immigration. This administration has used parole as the vehicle to create an entirely separate illegal system of admitting foreigners to the United States. Krikorian says parole was intended to give authorities some wiggle room, but it is supposed to be handed out on a case-by-case basis when there is a significant public benefit to doing so. The idea of using parole to admit numbers that reach the thousands is preposterous. The Biden administration insists that it is making decisions on a case-by-case basis. It's preparing to make that argument in court later this week, when a federal judge in Texas holds a crucial hearing. And the administration is getting help in the case from some of the people who've sponsored their friends and relatives from abroad. Monica Langarica is a lawyer with the UCLA Center for Immigration Law and Policy. She represents those sponsors. Not only is this entirely consistent with the law, But it's also no different from what other uh, administrations have done for years. The family members Langerica is representing include Valerie Lavias, the woman we met earlier, who brought her brother and nephew to Florida from Haiti, and also Herman Cadenas, a professor of psychology at Rutgers University who sponsored his uncle from Venezuela. He's just a very decent, good human being. And for me to be able to help him ease the burden that he's been under, has been incredibly rewarding, and it's like the least I can do. And it's the least the country can do, Cadena says, to keep these legal pathways open. Joel Rose, NPR News. The Black Sea grain deal is over, for now anyway. But the defense ministers of Ukraine and Bulgaria sounded a defiant tone today about the future of grain and other commercial shipments on the Black Sea. They say Russia's efforts to strangle Ukraine with an embargo and missile strikes aren't working. NPR's Brian Mann is in Odessa, Ukraine's biggest Black Sea port, and joins us now. Hi, Brian. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so you were at the press conference today. What did you hear from them? Well, these ministers say they've come up with a plan that's already allowing some commercial vessels to operate in these very dangerous waters. Here's Bulgaria's defense minister, uh, Todar Tugarev. I got the report that over 100 ships have been passing in both directions, so traffic is not stopping. Of them, only a couple were Ukrainian ships. I believe that this will continue in the future, and we hope that uh, there will be no provocations by Russian 
naval vessels. And I should say also, Russians did stop and board one freighter, a Turkish-owned vessel, a week ago. The Russian defense ministry said they actually fired warning shots with a small automatic weapon. Uh, but Tagarov says that's the only incident so far. Well, I understand that the countries have developed a new shipping corridor that they hope will be safer for vessels. How does that corridor work exactly? Yeah, this effort began last month when Russia quit the global grain deal, choking off Ukraine's agricultural exports. So these countries quickly came up with a route that doesn't run through international waters. Instead, it basically hugs the coast. Ships will pass along through Ukrainian waters, then enter the territorial waters of Romania, Bulgaria and Turkey. Speaking today through an interpreter, Ukraine's defense minister, Oleksiy Reznikov, said this route affords vessels a lot more protection. It is difficult to imagine that Russians are crazy and dare to attack ships in three NATO countries. One vessel loaded with Ukrainian grain did make this trip last week without incident, and Ukrainian officials hope more companies are going to keep calling Russia's bluff. But there are still big risks to all this, right? Like, what about the Russian sea mines that have been placed near Ukrainian ports? Yeah, that's a big deal. The defense ministers who spoke today acknowledged they have a lot of work to do demining these waters. They say the navies and air forces of these four countries, again, Bulgaria, Romania, Turkey and Ukraine, they're already working together on that. But for now, mines are still a real danger to these ships. The other big risk right now is missile strikes. When the vessels are in port, it takes time to unload and uh, and bring cargoes on board. Meanwhile, Russia has been pounding these ports uh, here in Odessa. There have been strikes and, and also strikes on the Danube River, which runs between Ukraine and Romania, uh, which is a member of NATO. So Despite the message at this press conference, uh, many transport experts say shipping companies, a lot of them at least, aren't going to want to put their vessels in this kind of danger. Right. Okay. Well, real quick, uh, another development. Ukraine has now been promised dozens of American-made F-16 fighter jets. Where will they come from? Yeah, these are fighters the U.S. had sold to Denmark and the Netherlands. Ukrainian officials say they may receive as many as 60 F-16s from those two countries. It's important to say they won't arrive until sometime next year. So the counteroffensive underway right now, those soldiers uh, are going to have to keep fighting without this kind of better air support for months. That is NPR's Brian Mann in Odessa. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The first round of the presidential election in Guatemala was more notable for apathy, low voter turnout, and spoiled ballots. Well, that was in June. Then last night, an outsider, an anti-corruption campaigner, changed all that. Bernardo Arevalo pulled off one of the country's biggest political upsets in years and claimed a landslide victory. NPR's Ada Peralta reports from Guatemala City. When I was here a couple of months ago, all I heard was lament. All politicians are thieves. Guatemala is circling the drain of authoritarianism, and there's little we can do about it. But yesterday, as I crisscrossed the voting precincts in Guatemala City, all I hear is hope. Esto es espectacular para mí. This is spectacular, says Armando Galvez. He's 76 years old, and he didn't even vote in the first round of these elections. This round, I said, 
Yes, sir, I'm voting, he says, because it's a moral and spiritual obligation. Suddenly, he says, an improbable outsider candidate has led to what he calls a Guatemalan awakening. Voting took place with few hiccups, and just as the sun started to set, counting began. And what emerged was a landslide. Bernardo Revalo, an outsider, an anti-corruption crusader in a country where those kinds of people are being persecuted, won the election with 58% of the vote, some 20 percentage points over his rival. To Jair Dabroy, a political analyst at the Association for Research and Social Studies, a think tank in Guatemala, this election marks a turning point. First, Guatemala has almost always had conservative governments. Now they have a progressive center-left president-elect. And this brings a measure of freshness to the Central American region, he says. Bernardo Arevalo, who is a 64-year-old sociologist, is backed by the young people of Guatemala, and many of his advisors and party leaders aren't even old enough to run for president. Lebroy says it also marks a departure from what we had been seeing in Central America, more authoritarianism in exchange for order and security. This campaign, he says, was mainly about ending corruption and about other modern themes like the environment and gender equality. Todas esas necesidades requieren como eje fundamental el tema de la libertad y de un Estado democrático de derecho. All those things, he says, require democracy. In a speech, Bernardo Arevalo committed to reversing the government's persecution of independent judges and prosecutors, as well as human rights activists and journalists. Nosotros haremos lo que corresponda desde el Ejecutivo, no únicamente para terminar con, este, con esta práctica, sino además... We will do what we can from the executive to end this practice, he said, and to protect those who defend the rights of Guatemalans. After his speech, thousands of Guatemalans poured out onto the street. It is almost 11 o'clock at night, and the crowd out here in Guatemala City keeps growing. And this is a huge celebration in Guatemala, because this was not supposed to happen. People are chanting, yes, we did it. Yes, it could be done. The party went on all night. It was a moment of hope. But by the time the sun came up, a bit of reality set in. Arevalo's main rival hinted she was not accepting the result, foreshadowing a long legal battle. Eder Pralta, NPR News, Guatemala City. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on WBUR next month, no more DVDs from Netflix. What it's going to do with all that plastic still on hand, still to come. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton. Now enrolling for the upcoming year. A nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture this summer. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. Cloudy skies overnight tonight. Some intermittent showers, especially for the first part of the night. 62 degrees for the low. Tomorrow should be lovely. Sunny, breezy, comfortable in the mid to upper 70s. A repeat for Wednesday. Sunshine returns. Temperatures should hover right around the mid-70s. It's 549. NPR correspondent Joanna Kakissas takes us to the front lines in Ukraine. 
So it's just rained and the camp is pretty muddy. We have to walk so we don't sink in it. Kind of like quicksand, whoa. We're walking now to one of the Bradley armored personnel carriers. She talks with soldiers about the latest counteroffensive tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. How many countries would want to belong to a club that has Russia as a member? The answer is quite a few. They're showing interest in joining BRICS, the group of world economies that includes Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. BRICS is holding a summit in Johannesburg this week. NPR's Philip Reeves says its rising prominence appears to partly be linked to the war in Ukraine. The United States Congress is on its feet. This is a standing ovation for Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, during his visit to Washington last December. Thank you so much. Zelensky delivers an upbeat message. We defeated Russia in the battle for minds of the world. Then Zelensky adds this. We have to do whatever it takes to ensure that countries of the Global South also gain such victory. The term Global South isn't really geographic. It refers to the world's poorer, often post-colonial countries, but also to the BRICS nations. It's territory where Zelensky's battle for the minds of the world is a long way from victory. I think countries in the Global South are saying, if you have a problem with Russia, it doesn't make us our problem. Sanusha Naidu is from the Institute for Global Dialogue based in South Africa, the country hosting the BRICS summit. We are independent countries. We can make our independent decisions. We don't have to be corralled into taking up side based on how others want to see it. There's resentment within the Global South over being pressured to impose sanctions and also over the attention the US and its allies give to this conflict, but not others. Horshi Hain is a former Chilean ambassador to three BRICS countries. For many countries in the Global South, to make this war into a global war, into a unique war, is quite inappropriate. And they strongly disagree with it. BRICS nations account for four out of every ten people on the planet. That number could soon grow. South Africa says some 40 nations have either applied to join the group or expressed an interest in doing so, reportedly including Saudi Arabia and Iran. I think it's the Western tone of moral superiority that gets these countries really worked up about this. When the West itself is violating principles and norms of international law all the time. Matthias Spector is Professor of International Relations at the Fundação Getúlio Vargas in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The question of whether and how to admit new members will be high on the summit's agenda. Spector says China is pushing for expansion. Because China conceives of the BRICS as a group in which the chief purpose is to show the world that there is an alternative to the Western international order. Jim O'Neill used to be top economist at Goldman Sachs. Still today, the Chinese call me the father of the BRICS every time they ever speak to one. BRICS matters to China, says O'Neill. They think it gives them a real voice in this never-ending argument that they need to have a bigger say in the World Bank, the IMF, WTO, and so on, and they're right. On that, they are definitely right. The Chinese call O'Neill the father of BRICS because of an article he wrote 22 years ago. In it, he flagged Brazil, Russia, India, and China, BRIC as he called it, as emerging economies deserving a greater role in global governance. 
The group was set up a few years later, using the acronym O'Neill invented. It added the S later, after South Africa joined. O'Neill is unimpressed with its performance so far. The BRICS political leaders have not really achieved anything since they first started meeting, in my view, other than this remarkable symbolism. BRICS should set clear criteria before admitting new members, says O'Neill. Do these countries bring something that the BRICS don't have already? Will they bring something that will make the economic and social performance of the current members better than it was before? As the BRICS club jets into Johannesburg. One key player will be missing. Vladimir Putin faces an arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court. As a signatory to the court, South Africa would have been obliged to detain him, though they probably wouldn't have done so, says Shivshanka Menon. Problem is the day after. What do you do with it the morning after? And uh, is the world really going to take this on? Menon's a former foreign secretary and national security advisor of India. He dislikes the term Global South. Its countries differ greatly and often have conflicting national interests, he says. Yet Menon admits they share some big issues that need attention, including... Issues of debt, issues of development, issues of climate change. BRICS has a reputation in the West as a mere talking shop. Now, as it prepares for its 15th summit, the mood is changing. The system of global governance is under growing stress, says Matthias Spector in Brazil. The system is becoming more dangerous by the day. And if on top of all the problems we have already, then you alienate the countries from the south, then we are asking for trouble, really. The West needs to pay attention, he says. Philip Reeves, NPR News. Netflix is marking an end to 25 years of mailing out DVDs in red envelopes by offering to send subscribers extra discs from their queue. NPR's Chloe Veltman says fans are welcoming the gesture ahead of the service shutting down at the end of next month. But it's also causing confusion. Longtime Netflix DVD customer Mo Long is a self-described film buff in North Carolina. He says there are 500 movies sitting in his queue right now. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get through that. Before Netflix ends its DVD service, Long is hoping to get to as many of those films as he can, including 1978's Foul Play. A new comedy thriller starring Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase. Long says once he's done, he plans, as usual, to return the discs to the sender. You don't get to keep the DVDs, you do have to send them back. A Netflix spokesperson confirmed the company is indeed expecting to get the goods back. But Netflix's promotional email doesn't explicitly say that. Because the company is scrapping its DVD service, many subscribers, like Leslie Loudermilk, are assuming it's a giveaway. It appeared to me that at the end of their time shipping these DVDs out, they're yours to keep because, after all, what are they going to do with them? That's a great question to put to a company that has shipped out more than 5 billion discs to customers since launching in 1998. DVDs are not easily recyclable. Most of them end up in landfill. Entertainment lawyer Lindsay Spiller says Netflix couldn't give the DVDs away even if it wanted to. The filmmakers and property rights owners give uh, Netflix uh, a license and then they can sub-license it to their subscribers, but they can't give anybody ownership. They don't have it themselves. They really should have made it clear whether this was a rental and what the return period is versus whether people were 
getting to hold on to these things. Massachusetts-based Netflix DVD customer Mary Gerby says she hopes the streamer will find ethical ways to dispose of its massive stockpile of plastic. Maybe to get them into libraries. She says she just doesn't want the DVDs to go to waste. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This NPR member station is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for supporting us and thanks for being with us this evening. Look for some clouds overnight tonight, intermittent showers, especially for the first part of the night, about 62 for a low. Tomorrow should be beautiful, sunny, breezy, temperatures in the mid to upper 70s, and then pretty much the same thing for Wednesday. Sunshine returns with temperatures in the mid 70s. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden is on the island of Maui to witness the scene of the deadliest American wildfire in more than 100 years. More than 114 people are dead, about 850 still unaccounted for. Coming up, how survivors are finding shelter. It's Monday, August 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Lisa Mullins also ahead. A new law in Texas provides some key medical exemptions to the state's nearly total ban on abortion. I think what was key about this legislation is that it did not have the term abortion in it. And because of that, it did not become a political football. The measure and the Democratic lawmaker are largely responsible for pushing it through coming up. And Yemen produces some of the best honey in the world, but the war and climate change are making it difficult for beekeepers to keep on producing it. It's 6.01 News Headlines next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Even as President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden have arrived in Hawaii, five more victims of the September 8th fire on Maui have been identified. 
NPR's Greg Allen reports the confirmed death toll so far is 114, but the search for victims continues. Officials say 16 individuals who died in the fire have been identified, and so far 11 families have been notified. Most of the burned area has been searched. Maui Mayor Richard Bisson is asking residents who still have relatives missing to come forward and provide DNA samples. The FBI and Maui County Coroner are working together to identify all the recovered remains. Bisson says 850 people reported missing are still unaccounted for. Nearly 2,000 people displaced in the fire are being temporarily housed in hotels. Many others are staying with friends and family and may not have registered yet with FEMA or other authorities. Greg Allen, NPR News, Maui. Legal documents released this weekend reveal what evidence police in Marion, Kansas used to justify the raid of a local newsroom in a journalist's home. As NPR's Danielle Kay reports the documents were not filed with the district court until three days after the raid. The police department in Marion, Kansas, a city of about 2,000, raided the Marion County Records newsroom and its publisher's home on August 11th. Officers took computers, cell phones, and other reporting materials. According to new affidavits, the police chief claims the crimes involved in this case were identity theft and unlawful use of a computer when journalists got hold of a local restaurant owner's driving record. But the newspaper's attorney says those allegations are unfounded, and the reporter was, quote, doing her job by verifying information on a public state website. The attorney is also raising questions about why the legal documents were filed after the raid had already taken place. Danielle Kay, NPR News. A new survey shows business economists increasingly optimistic the Federal Reserve can bring down inflation without tipping the economy into recession. Here's NPR Scott Horsley. Almost 7 out of 10 forecasters surveyed by the National Association for Business Economics say they're at least somewhat confident now that the Fed will achieve that hope-for soft landing. Back in March, only about 3 in 10 economists thought that was likely. Since that time, inflation has cooled from 5% to just over 3%, and despite three additional interest rate hikes by the Fed, the unemployment rate remains very low, just 3.5%. Central bankers and other policymakers will gather later this week in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is set to address the meeting on Friday, and investors will be listening for any clues about future moves on interest rates. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Pilots at American Airlines have signed off on a new contract that will raise their pay by 41 percent over the next four years. The Allied Pilots Association saying 73 percent of pilots voted to ratify the $9.6 billion deal. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 36 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Woburn is trying to accommodate migrants who the state has temporarily housed in hotels there. WBUR's Amy Sokolow reports that Woburn is one of more than 80 communities the state's relying on to help handle the increase in new arrivals. Mayor Scott Galvin says the number of new families in Woburn has jumped from 10 to 59 in a week. He says the state has told him to prepare for up to 100 families. Galvin says the police and fire chiefs and the school superintendent are working together to welcome the families. We have a great team. We're ready for any challenge. But this one is a little bit different, and it's going to be a continuing challenge, and and we're definitely going to be needing some support from the state and the federal government to make this work. Under state law, Massachusetts is required to provide housing for families experiencing homelessness. Governor Healy has declared a state of emergency to help deal with the overwhelming demand for emergency housing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow.
The Healy administration announced today it has applied for more federal money to fund three major infrastructure projects. Among them, the project to redevelop the Mass Pike area in Alston. Massachusetts is also looking for help to replace a North Station drawbridge and reconstruct parts of Route 9. This is in addition to the state's effort to secure funding for the replacement of the aging Sagamore and Bourne bridges on the Cape. As college students begin to move into apartments off campus, the city of Boston is working to educate the new renters. Jessica Thomas is with Boston's Inspectional Services. She says in keeping with a new law, if someone wants to get rid of an old mattress, they just can't throw it out on the sidewalk. They want to call 311 ahead of time to schedule a mattress collection because the city is not just collecting mattresses without prior pickup notice. And for residents who live in a building with seven or more units should be instructed to contact their property manager. Thomas says inspectional services will have crews available 24 hours a day. And again, anyone with an issue can get help by calling 311. 83 degrees in the Boston area should be a lovely summer week. Right now, it's looking like overnight tonight, we should have some clouds around. Temperatures about 62, maybe some showers. Then more sunshine back tomorrow. Sunny, breezy, highs around 77. Ditto for Wednesday. Sunny and comfortable, at least it looks that way right now, with temperatures in the mid-70s. 83 degrees now in Boston at 607. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. President Biden is in Maui today to survey the damage and talk to survivors of one of the deadliest wildfires in U.S. history. Two weeks after that event, most people whose homes were destroyed have found temporary housing. Some 2,000 people have moved into hotel rooms or Airbnbs. Many others are staying with family and friends, stopgap accommodations while they look for long-term housing. NPR's Greg Allen visited a home in Maui where 87 people, most of them from one extended family, have been staying while they consider what to do next. It's more than just a home, maybe more of a compound, with a house, a large garage, and other buildings. There are more than a dozen cars in the gravel parking lot. The hosts, the people who own this property, have connections to the family but don't want to be identified. Near the house, there's a large group of kids. 87 is the most who've stayed here, but the number fluctuates. There are about 25 to 30 children and as many as 50 or 60 adults. That's a lot of people. But Travis Cabanillo Ocano says it's not really that unusual. This is life in Hawaii. This is culture. We grew up sleeping in our cousin's house. We grew up sleeping with 20 of us in one little room, you know, but it's letting our kids and us being together like that brings a lot of comfort, I think, to for me. O'Connell found a temporary place to stay here with his wife, three kids, and other members of his family, including cousins, aunts, uncles, and his 80-year-old grandfather. Recalling the fire, O'Connell's partner, Haley Miller, says the wind that day was whipping in a way that she hadn't seen before. By mid-afternoon, she smelled smoke. O'Connell jumped on a bike and rode toward the mountains to check it out. Within a few minutes, Miller says, things got really bad. We were just engulfed in ambers and black smoke and just everything. And so I see him coming back. He was riding a bike. Our neighbors running back. And they're like, I just saw them just like, come on, let's go. We got to go. They grabbed their kids, jumped into their car, and immediately were caught in a traffic jam as residents and tourists scrambled to escape the approaching fire. Miller says by the time they made it to O'Connor's parents' house, the fire had spread. 
She says it sounded like a series of bombs going off. The roof's caving in, it's the propane tanks blowing up, and the, the junkyard, all the cars, the gas tanks, like it was literally like every probably 10 seconds, you just heard Okano's sister, Nikki Holleran, also had a harrowing escape, but eventually made it out of Lahaina. She, her partner, and her kids spent the night in their car. The next day, Holleran says they made contact with other family members and reunited in a Walmart parking lot. My oldest is not one for emotions, but when he saw the family, like all of us, just it was just relief, yeah, like to just greet everybody and know that we're okay, and I know that they were worrying so much, you know. Remarkably, everyone in Okano and Holleran's extended family got out safely. Haley Miller called her mother, who said she could stay at Miller's stepfather's house on the other side of the island. But Miller told her she needed a place for all of her family members. Like, we've been through the fire together. Every single one of our family members is homeless. Like, there's nothing but what we have on our backs. My mom was like, okay, like, I understand. And then she calls me back 20 minutes later. She's like, come. Travis Okano says the kindness of his wife's stepfather has meant a lot to his family. Oh uh, yeah, but I mean this is not this is not home, you know. I mean, I am grateful and blessed, I mean, for where we are and, and, and what we have. But Okano says his family is part of Lahaina, a close-knit community that's now dispersed. He's anxious to get back to his burned home to get photos of his property and start planning for the future. The properties in Lahaina, including Okano's and those of most of his family, are in an area that's now toxic. There will have to be extensive work removing debris and contaminated soil before rebuilding can begin. Hawaii Governor Josh Green has said at least nine months of housing will be made available to those displaced in the fire. But Haley Miller says the only housing she's heard of is for the short term. Other members of her family are in a hotel. They need to be gone by the 30th. You might be able to just take a couple days of downtime to get on your feet and find a solution, but really, where is there to go? Even before the fire, Maui had a severe housing shortage. But Travis O'Connor was hoping to find a long-term rental. Despite the challenges, he's confident that the community where he grew up and his family has lived for generations will be back. Lahaina is going to prevail in all of this. We're going to come out on top and God will help us to be, be Lahaina strong, yes. In the two weeks since the fire, this large family and others who are staying here are finding a new rhythm as they think about how they'll rebuild their lives. At night, they gather and talk, and sometimes with friends like Max Lewis, they have music. Greg Allen, NPR News, Maui. Texas Governor Greg Abbott addressed a rally earlier this year celebrating the abortion ban that took effect after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. As long as I am governor of the great state of Texas, Texas will always protect the unborn. Thank you all. Well, in fact, just a few weeks ago, Abbott signed a law giving doctors leeway to provide abortions in Texas when patients face certain serious pregnancy complications. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin asked the Democrat from Houston who wrote that bill how she got it passed. 
Here is the problem, as State Representative Ann Johnson sees it. There are two groups of people that are talking past each other on a term. That term is abortion. For doctors, she says, an abortion is any termination of pregnancy. That includes if the fetus has a fatal condition or if the pregnant patient is facing a serious medical complication. For politicians who oppose abortion rights, she says... They believe abortion to be the elective procedure on a completely healthy fetus. Johnson is a Democrat. She says even if the goal of the Texas abortion bans was to stop those elective abortions, the law makes no distinction. Abortion in Texas is banned from conception, full stop. There is a medical exception, but it's extremely narrow. Someone has to be close to death. Very few cases qualify. The doctors and the hospitals and their lawyers were reading all of the Texas statutes, some of which from the early 1900s that went back into effect when Dobbs came out and saying, look, we can't tell you what to do here. The language is confusing. The terminology and the definitions are confusing. The laws also come with extremely steep penalties for doctors, like life in prison, the loss of their medical license, and $100,000 in fines. Johnson's district, Texas 134, includes the Houston Medical Center. She says after Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court and the Texas abortion bans took effect, people would stop her when she took walks around the district. Many of them would say, I know who you are. I'm a physician. And would talk about the concern that they had. The laws don't just affect OBGYNs, she says, pointing to a recent law that imposes criminal penalties on prescribers of certain medications that can cause abortions, like methotrexate, a drug used to treat cancer and autoimmune disorders. If you have a general practitioner or a dermatologist that's treating psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis of a 34-year-old woman who has no intentions of getting pregnant, and then she gets pregnant six months later, and that pregnancy terminates because of that medication. That doctor could get charged with a felony, she says. There have also been real-life stories, including many reported by NPR, in which patients facing pregnancy complications could not get doctors or hospitals to provide abortions early enough to fend off infections, hemorrhage, and more. Johnson heard from her constituents about women whose water broke too early. And the stories that I was hearing is that women were suffering permanent physical, medical conditions because of a very basic event that happens in pregnancy, which is a ruptured membrane. When this happens at 17 weeks of pregnancy, for instance, there's no way for the fetus to survive, and the patient is at high risk of infection, even sepsis. Johnson is an attorney by profession. She says she had to think creatively about how to make the abortion laws work better for doctors by allowing them to intervene during complications. She also believes many of her Republican colleagues who voted for these laws did so without realizing the wide-ranging impact they would have on medical care. So a few weeks after the legislative session started at the beginning of the year, she introduced a bill. Originally, the bill broadly allowed doctors to provide medically necessary services. We actually filed this bill early on in the session, and nobody noticed it which was by design. Since Democrats are in the minority in the Texas legislature, she had to figure out a way to get bipartisan support. The Senate sponsor of the bill was none other than Republican State Senator Brian Hughes, the author of SB8, what's known as the bounty hunter law that allows private citizens to sue anyone for aiding and abetting a Texas abortion. Hughes did not respond to repeated requests for comment on this story. Johnson says he was a big help in lining up key supporters across the legislature. I'm glad that we were able to have honest conversations 
this would not have happened without having him in the Senate get this through. The final bill is not as broad as the original. It outlines two conditions where doctors can provide abortions. Preterm premature rupture of membranes, the medical term for when someone's water breaks too early, and ectopic pregnancy, which happens when a fertilized egg implants somewhere besides the uterine lining. Yes, there are absolutely other pregnancy complications. In this moment, we could get the bipartisan agreement of the recognition of ectopic pregnancy and ruptured membrane. Johnson says she's proud of HB 3058. She says no other piece of legislation that addressed abortions even got a hearing. I think what was key about this legislation is that it did not have the term abortion in it. And because of that, it did not become a political football. It passed at the last possible moment, she says. And I am glad that the governor signed it. To me, it is a first step. I just very strongly feel we need to do more. The next regular legislative session won't be until 2025. In the meantime, a law that actually widens access to abortion in Texas, at least in some cases, will take effect September 1st. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up on WBUR on Marketplace, in the world of animation, the most expensive part of production is creating landscapes in 3D. And if you have one castle here, one city corner, and you want the character to run through it, then you actually have to build the whole thing. But what if artificial intelligence could help animators save time and cost? That's coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. It's now 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Today, ups and downs on Wall Street for this first trading day of the week. The Dow dipped just about a tenth of a percent. The S&P gained ground today about seven-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq rose for the first time in five days, up more than one and a half percent. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Fall semester starts September 18th, semesteroff.com. First pitch tonight in Houston is at 8:10 as the Red Sox and the Astros start up a four-game series. Boston's James Paxton will face Christian Javier in the matchup. J- uh, Jaron Duran and Justin Turner will sit out tonight's game with injuries, but the Sox will get first baseman Tristan Cassis back after he was hospitalized with a tooth infection. Sox are three games out of the final wild card spot. In the forecast overnight tonight, some showers, lots of clouds, temperatures in the low 60s. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy, highs around 77. 82 degrees now in Boston at 620. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. 
and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Yemen produces some of the finest honey in the world. Even years of civil war hasn't changed that. NPR's Fatma Tanis reports. As I was preparing for a reporting trip to Yemen, I spoke to a lot of Yemenis, refugees who fled the war and some experts too. One thing that unexpectedly came up a lot was the honey and how amazing it was. I was intrigued, but a little skeptical too. It would be hard to find, I was told. The near-decade-long civil war has devastated much of Yemen's natural resources and its production infrastructure. With the help of our driver in Aden, we found a trusted beekeeper named Yusuf Alazazi. He tells us the best and rarest honey comes from bees who feed on cider trees, also known as a lote tree in English. It's an ancient tree, mainly in the mountainous parts of Yemen. Nowadays, he says, many honey shops sell counterfeit cider honey, which is made when bees are fed sugar water. But here in this shop, he has the real stuff hidden in a locked cabinet. Alazazi pulls out jugs filled with golden liquid. It's finally time for us to have a taste. But first, we're given a warning. If you taste it once, you will crave it a thousand times, Alazazi says. My colleague Claire Harbage and I decide to take the risk and try some of the best honey Yemen has to offer. Mm, this, is, this is the best one. Very floral, right? Floral, but like with caramel. Very caramelly. There's a rich undertone that's like nutty. Wow. Flavors hit the tongue in waves, one after the other. It's smooth, and there's no stinging in your throat from the sweetness. Alazazi has his own take on the taste. It's better than the best chocolate in the world. Nothing compares. But there's so much more to it than its taste. Researchers say cider honey has antibacterial and other healthy qualities similar to the more accessible manuka honey from New Zealand. Honey is a key ingredient in Yemeni cuisine, and this one in particular used to be abundant and popular around the country. But now, most Yemenis don't have access to this honey. In the past decade, climate change and the war wreaked havoc. Flash floods destroyed many cider trees. And Alazazi says beehives were damaged in the fighting by airstrikes and missile attacks. Now, the war has slowed down to a stalemate, and Alazazi is hopeful. Peace is coming soon, he says, and with it, Yemen will get its dignity and its honey back. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Aden, Yemen. Earlier this summer, social media exploded with news about a mysterious material known as LK-99. What is the big deal about the possible superconductor LK-99? LK-99 superconductor? LK-99. And you won't believe what this could mean. Magnetically levitating trains. There's all kinds of stuff. Online, it looked like LK-99 might be about to change everything. But in laboratories all over the world, scientists were feeling confused. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports on what happened next. In late July, three Korean scientists posted a paper on a physics website. It claimed that a new material, LK-99, could conduct electricity with no resistance at room temperature. Within days on social media, Silicon Valley executives were posting about it. Reddit blew up. It was everywhere. 
just happens so fast, you know, it is incredible. Jean-Pierre Paglioni is director of the Quantum Materials Center at the University of Maryland. He's exactly the kind of researcher who should know all about LK99, but he'd never heard of it or seen a sample. I almost felt sort of pressured to try to produce something as quick as possible. So he put his team to work following a formula from the South Korean paper. As fast as they could, they made a few small chunks of LK99. He shows me some. They look like gray grains of rice on a little circuit board. Show you. So that's the purported LK99 material. You see there's two pieces here. Oh, interesting. So we have wires attached. We'll come back to this real-life sample in a minute. But first, let's talk about why everyone online got so excited. Richard Green is a physicist at Maryland who works with Paglioni. I only come in for the good experiments. Green is 85 years old and has spent much of his career studying something called superconductivity. Now, you've heard of regular conductivity. That's the process by which electricity flows through metal wires. Superconductivity is when that electricity flows with no resistance. It gets from point A to point B quickly and effortlessly. In principle, if you had a superconducting wire, you could run it from the West Coast to the East Coast and generate some electricity over there with a generator and put it right on the East Coast with no loss of energy. This would be huge. For example, solar panels on one side of the Earth could power the other side at nighttime. Of course, there'd be lots of other uses, too. Some have even suggested levitating trains because superconductors have the ability to float above magnets. Scientists have known about superconductors for more than a century. The problem is that to work, most superconductors have to be super cold. But this LK99... According to the paper, it could superconduct at room temperature. And as evidence, the authors posted a brief video which seemed to show LK99 floating above a magnet, just like a superconductor. Green says he thinks that short video is what made LK99 take off online. The fact that it's floating is what generates a lot of interest. Nobody cares about a resistance versus temperature curve. (laughs) But a video of some floating stuff wasn't going to cut it for Green and Paglioni, so they asked postdoc Keenan Avers to make LK99 in their lab. And here I want to take a minute to make a public service announcement. There have been some videos online of people making LK99 at home. Do not do that. Avers says it contains molten lead, which is both toxic and dangerous. It will eat through quartz, it just eats right through it. It will diffuse through ceramic aluminum oxide crucibles. It will get drunk in a dive bar and punch your friend in the face. But he's a professional. He made some, the samples I mentioned earlier, and the team tried to test them. They hooked them up to some electrical connections and... We tried to get electric current through it. We just couldn't. That's right. The supposed superconductor couldn't even light a light bulb. This isn't even a bad conductor. It's just an insulator. In other words, this sample of LK99 is the farthest thing from a superconductor imaginable. Leslie Schaup is a chemist at Princeton University who's also made LK99 and found it does not superconduct. She spent a lot of the past few weeks on social media trying to calm everybody down. It's been an emotional roller coaster. There were moments I was annoyed, and then there were other moments where I thought this was funny. It's been frustrating at times. But on the other hand, lots of people got excited about physics and got excited about things which are very, very out there, right? So for me, that was also beautiful to see. 
These days, social media is filled with new posts and videos declaring LK99 a flop. Again, Jean-Pierre Paglioni. Oh, it's dead. It's decided. But he says he's just as frustrated by the poo-pooing as he was by the hype. This is not how science works. We, we make judgments, but of course... It takes a long time. It doesn't take a week. He's still studying LK99. There could turn out to be something special about it. It's just probably not going to give humanity a hovering train. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. And this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Marketplace is coming up next. Coming to WBUR City Space Friday, August 25th, this coming Friday, the Mortified podcast featuring true stories of teen angst told live by the adults who went through it. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. A cloudy, windy night tonight could have gusts as high as 20 miles an hour tonight. Temperatures about 63 degrees. Then for tomorrow, some clouds early, eventually turning partly sunny with highs in the mid to upper 70s. Same thing for Wednesday, sunshine with temperatures in the low to mid 70s. This is WBUR 82 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org.